Thank you, Ante. That was a wonderful introduction, but now I'm wondering how can I ever follow an act like that? That is what I said. <laughs> well, I do appreciate the invitation. This is my first time at Andrews University, but I have lots of ties here. Uh, we have one doctoral student, I think, on your faculty from Trinity. Um, I've ha I used Dr. John Peckham's book in a seminar this fall. Uh, we'll be contacting you with our questions soon. And I have another doctoral student in the making. She's in the oven, but not yet cooked. Thank you for coming out and listening to me on a Thursday night. I think you have a handout as well. More words, 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 words. We're all disciples of someone's words. Each of us is following a script, whether it's Plato's philosophy or some footnote thereof, a scientific textbook, parental wisdom, Hallmark cards, fortune cookies, or simply lines from our favorite film. Life is like a box of chocolates. We all have a philosophy of life, a, a worldview, in light of which we try to make sense of things and make decisions about what to do with our freedom. So think about it. Whose words are you following? We're not the first people to face the challenge of being biblical in a pluralistic age. Ancient Israel lived in a pluralistic land, Canaan, filled with a variety of peoples, practices, religions, and tribal deities. But so did the early Christians. Just read Acts 17 or Paul's epistles to the church at Corinth. Michael Kruger has recently written a book entitled Christianity at the Crossroads. It sounds contemporary, doesn't it? It's about the second century church. And he does a great job at describing the plurality the second century church faced. So we're not the first people to be faced with the challenge of living biblically in a pluralistic age. And how we respond to our present moment will indeed determine the future of the church, just as how the second century church responded to its moment determined what followed. First thing I want to call to your attention is how Israel responded to the word of God in the context of ancient Near Eastern pluralism. Remember the word from Deuteronomy 4.6. Keep these statutes and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of peoples, so that when they hear these statutes, they will say, surely this great nation, Israel, is a wise and understanding people. So there were other words that Israel could have followed. And yet, a few years, a few centuries later, we read that Solomon's wisdom, because Israel had followed God's word, Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt and people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Wouldn't that be great if we could substitute the word evangelical, for example, for Solomon? We're not there yet. But think about Jesus' bold claim when he said to his listeners, Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Our problem is there are so many rival claims, so many people hawking good fortunes, good deals, good ideas. Just think for a moment with me about our society and all the messages out there about diet, health, and wellness. Everybody wants to eat well, feel well, and be well. And this is not a new thing. When Jacob traveled to visit his uncle, the first thing he asked when he arrived was, is it well with him? Genesis 29, 6. And the Hebrew there is shalom, 
one of the richest and most important terms in the Old Testament. It can apply to individuals or groups, and it connotes peace and soundness and harmony and completeness, wholeness, wellness. In our century, wellness has become something of a national obsession. It's big business. A handful of scholars suggest that the pursuit of well-being defines our present age. The work-out ethic has replaced the Protestant work ethic. Everybody wants to get in good shape. Have you heard of the Global Wellness Institute, the GWI? It's a nonprofit organization whose mission is to empower wellness worldwide by educating public and private sectors about preventative health and wellness. They define wellness as, quote, a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being. Who doesn't want that? And some pharmaceutical companies offer enhancement technologies that promise to make you better than well. Whose words shall we follow in looking for wellness today? Many people are touting the good news that you can make yourself well if you follow this or that program or buy this or that vitamin supplement. So we're living in an age where there's a plurality of gospels. Lots of people have good news for sale. The Bible promises both wisdom and wellness. Listen to John's prayer for Gaius in 3 John, verse 2. He says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health just as it is well with your soul. This raises the question, are there multiple ways to get well? In what follows, I'm going to try to relate this to worldview. And then we'll examine the good, the bad, and the ugly in our pluralistic age. And then having set the stage, I'll bring out my main thesis, which is an attempt to identify the major challenge pluralism presents to those of us who want to think, live, and act biblically. And then I'll offer some constructive suggestions for what the church needs to do in order to stay biblical. And then I'll draw some conclusions about the shape Christian discipleship should take if we are to become wise and winsome witnesses in our present pluralistic age. So I finally arrived at my Roman numeral one. What is a worldview? We've already heard some very good introductory statements. To those, I want to add something Mary Poplin says. She says worldviews are like operating systems on a computer except that they're in our minds. Think about that. A worldview provides the instructions that run the program that is your life. Or think of a worldview as a map that provides existential orientation to where you are, a way of navigating your way through life. Think of a worldview as a map to wellness a frame of reference for achieving human flourishing. Worldviews are ways of viewing reality, and every worldview has what I think we could call a doctrinal component, certain things that you're supposed to believe, assumptions about the way the world is. So take, for example, material naturalism the belief that everything that exists in the world is ultimately reducible to material reality, physical stuff. It's misleading to think that worldviews are simply sets of doctrines, though. Uh, one of my former colleagues, Paul Hebert, a cultural anthropologist, he likes to define worldview as the foundational cognitive, effective, and evaluative assumptions and frameworks that a group of people makes about the nature of reality, which they then use to order their lives. 
So thoughts, yes, but it also affects our wills, our decision-making, and our feelings. I'm stressing that we don't want to over-intellectualize worldview. You, you may be aware of James Sire. He's the author of The Universe Next Door, a basic worldview catalog. He admits to, once upon a time, having exaggerated the cognitive dimension. The first three editions of his book treated worldviews as something that you can reduce to a set of philosophical ideas. But in the fifth edition, <laughs> he provides a broader definition. In that edition, he says, a worldview is a commitment, a fundamental orientation of the heart that can be expressed as a set of presuppositions or as a story. And we hold this story, consciously or unconsciously, consistently or inconsistently, this story about the basic constitution of reality, and that provides the foundation on which we live and move and have our being." End quote. In other words, and this is crucial, worldviews aren't simply something for professional philosophers. They're not purely conceptual either. They're affairs of the heart, and that means they're at the core of what it means to be human. And out of the heart come the issues of life. So the conference has chosen a very apt and important theme. A worldview, then, is a way of thinking and living that is pursuing a way of wellness, a way of life intended to achieve shalom in as many domains as possible, physical, psychological, professional, social, financial, and yes, religious. So this conference is happening because there are many conflicting worldviews. There always have been, remember the church in the second century, but for reasons that I hope will become apparent tonight, this clash has become more acute of late. Now, some people who study worldviews suggest that they all try to address four core questions. I'm now at 1C. Who am I? That is, what does it mean to be a human? Where am I? What kind of world do I live in? Then third, what's wrong with us? That is, what is the problem of the human condition and how can we improve it? And then fourthly, where are we going? This is the question of destiny. What is our aim? And many worldviews answer these questions, not by a set of answers, but with an overarching story or what's sometimes called a meta-narrative. For example, think of Darwin's story of evolution. That has become for many a meta-narrative, a control story that guides and governs one's thinking about every area of life. I've even read a book, believe it or not, called Darwin's Cathedral, which gives an evolutionary explanation for Calvinism. <laughs> Tom Wright's name was mentioned. I think it's safe to say it again. Tom Wright uh, reads the New Testament authors as answering precisely these questions. His, his big project is a New Testament theology. And he believes the whole Bible articulates a worldview in the form of a control story. So the canon is a, is a large control story. It's a frame of reference with which believers in Jesus Christ make sense of the world and their own lives. I think we see something of this in James 1, verses 22 to 25. That's the passage where James is talking about seeing ourselves in the mirror of Scripture. Think about that, the, that what we see in the mirror of the text is a storied worldview in which we can answer these questions about ourselves. And 
uh, James also suggests that if we pay attention to what we see in the mirror, this story of scripture, um, we shouldn't forget what we see. We should be doers and not hearers only of this control story. And worldviews do generate ways of doing, a way of being in the world. So because worldviews do involve thoughts and seeing and acting, I prefer to speak not of meta-narratives, but of meta-dramas, meta-dramas, control stories made flesh, because drama has to do with people enacting stories with their bodies, with their whole lives. And from birth to death, our life is a story made flesh. It has a beginning, a middle, an end. We live it out with others on the stage of history in the great theater of the world. Drama adds another worldview question, however, and it's this. What's happening? What's going on? And what is my role in it? Now, you may not like the idea that you're an actor in a drama, but that doesn't matter. Fact is, God has called each of us into being at a particular place and time. He has cast us in his drama, and he's asked us to play our parts fittingly, to say the right things, to do the right things that correspond to Jesus Christ and glorify him. That's my Christian theological spin on what a worldview is. It's, at least with regard to Christians, it's, it's the drama that centers on Jesus Christ. So, being biblical means understanding the story made flesh of which we are a part. And it means participating rightly in that story, that meta-drama. That's, that's why we're here. So, as human beings, we're not passive observers. We are active actors. And we look into the mirror of scripture and we must remember the part we've been called to play. We've been made new in Christ and we're to live that out. What I'm suggesting is that we act biblically when we fit ourselves into the control story of scripture. Now, I said earlier that we're all disciples following somebody's words, somebody's stories about how to get well. But the Bible isn't simply a set of human words. It's God's word about God's story. The story of Jesus Christ is a theodrama. It's a drama about what God has done and is doing and will do to restore creation and renew sinners. In other words, the Bible answers all those questions. Who am I? A creature in God's image. That's an important answer that our society is struggling with, the answer to the question, who are we? Where are we? We're in, good, we're in God's good creation, but it's been affected by the fall. It's, we're in a state of corruption. What's wrong with us? The Bible has a clear answer for that. We've defaced God's image and we've defied the creator. Where are we going? Well, the Bible has two answers for that, <laughs> depending on your role in the story. As to my fifth question, what's happening? The good news is that God is adopting sinners into his family and he's conforming them to his son through the Holy Spirit. That's good news. So at the heart of the Christian worldview is gospel, the story made flesh of Jesus Christ, which is the hope of salvation. In Christ, God is making all things well. It's this story, this drama made flesh that Christians should be living out as their worldview. Just as importantly, 
The gospel isn't for Christians only. It is the true story of the whole world. It's a public truth, and it encompasses the nations, not to mention the heavens and the earth. So the gospel story is a way of wisdom and wellness, but it remains countercultural because the wisdom of God is the foolishness of other worldviews. Okay, point two. The easiest way to introduce our pluralistic age is to say there are many stories that are serving as the framework for people's ways of getting well, ways of living. Again, every worldview has its own version of the gospel, some promise about wellness that we can achieve if we would only follow this set of beliefs and practices. For example, best-selling author Deepak Chopra. He believes he's found a way for people to achieve perfect health, a condition that is free from disease, that never feels pain, that cannot age or die. Anybody interested? (laughs) Chopra's genius is to combine New Age mysticism with quantum physics to promote what he calls quantum healing. It's a long story. (laughs) In any case, in our pluralistic age, there are lots and lots of stories to choose from, everything from philosophies to diet books, and again, they all are telling us how to get well. There's good reason to be concerned, even alarmed, about the fate of Christianity in a pluralistic age. But let me begin by stressing some positives. The pluralism we're experiencing today is not altogether unrelated to Congress's decision in 1791 not to mandate a state religion or a state ideology. We may not like the extremes of pluralism, but it's a byproduct of our constitutional right to exercise religious freedom. And I, for one, am grateful that we're not living in an age of empire where this right is severely curtailed, as in ancient Rome. So the kind of pluralism I want to support is the one that restrains from using force to suppress the freedom of thought or expression. That free market, of course, comes with some risk. We have other stories, so many stories, on the market. And we're living in a globalized world as well. There's a new kind of empire out there that rules not by armies, but by the hegemony of popular culture. I strongly believe that culture, by which I mean everything that is done not by reflex, culture is the most powerful means of spiritual formation there is. Television shows, of all things, have made certain lifestyles socially acceptable in our culture. So this new empire, I'm gonna call it the popular cultural industrial entertainment complex, this new empire uses social media to sell not only goods but lifestyles and philosophies. Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter They're all weapons of mass instruction. But this pluralistic age has its own pathologies. For one thing, it fosters a spirit of consumerism. There's so many paths to wellness, we have to choose. We all have to become consumers. The religious pluralism associated with the philosopher John Hick sees religions as so many brands of what is essentially the same product in his his eyes, which he calls the eternal one. For John Hick, no one religion has a monopoly on religious truth because they all do the same thing. The only difference is the label. According to Hick, all religions free people from self-centeredness to reality-centeredness. But note what has happened. What on the surface is pluralistic 
now turns out to have a centripetal force. This is a little bit like the globalizing. What looks like there are many turns out to be one thing, variations on Hick's eternal one. Another pathology of our pluralistic age is its tendency to foster another spirit, not of consumerism, but of cynicism. I'm thinking, for example, of Francois Lyotard's description of the postmodern condition as incredulity towards metanarratives. In other words, people just have a hard time believing that any one story can be the truth because there are so many points of view out there. And so we tend not to get too excited about anything. So here, pluralism asks as a centrifugal force that prevents people from settling down with any one worldview and committing to it for life. So what people do is they might shop around for worldviews to see what works best for them on the day. It's no accident that millennials, along with generations X and Y, I'm not sure about Z, but these millennials make up the bulk of the so-called nuns, that is, those who profess no particular religious preference. The nuns don't yet have it, but they do make up 23% of America's adult population. They're skeptical, not only about religious institutions, but also about worldviews. Who, the nuns wonder, who is in a position to answer those core questions that I asked earlier? Where are the epistemological alchemists who can turn the dross of relative opinion into the gold of absolute knowledge? Millennials are, are cynical and skeptical. And then another pathology of pluralism is it's become increasingly obvious that we're living in a polarized society where ignorant armies clash by tweet. The deeper problem behind all this is that our culture, our culture is anti-culture. That is, our society doesn't seem to believe that there are any universal human qualities that are worth cultivating. Human beings have become empty canvases in which individuals are invited to finger paint their own portraits. Parents are even choosing names that could work for boys or girls so that children can make their own choice about their gender. The only thing our culture is sure it wants to cultivate is freedom of choice. But freedom without form is a vacuum, not a vocation. Point three, so what has happened to biblical authority in this situation? What has happened to scripture as our control story? If we're going to address the problem, I think we have to diagnose it correctly. I wanna look at two important symptoms. The first is what the great reversal in biblical hermeneutics. The second, the demise of biblical civilization. So first, the great reversal in biblical hermeneutics. I'm drawing on two Yale theologians here, George Lindbeck and Hans Frey. They, these Yale theologians, have called attention, dialed 911, uh, to the fateful revolution in the way Christians are reading the Bible. Hans Frey does this in his book, The Eclipse of Biblical Narrative. It's about 17th and 18th century hermeneutics. Hans Frey says that before the 17th and 18th century, Christians accepted the biblical narrative as the true story of the world. And they used the Bible as their framework of understanding to interpret everything else, the world around them and their own experience. But during the Enlightenment, the interpretive polarities got reversed. Modern men and women accept the story told by modern science, and this becomes the framework through which they then read the Bible. Do you see what has happened? And instead of fitting the real world into the biblical framework, 
Modern thinkers try to fit the biblical story into what they think they know about the real world that they've learned from something else than the Bible. In other words, where earlier Christians tried to read the world in light of the Bible, now we're more likely to read the Bible in light of our critically reconstructed history and theories. The great reversal you see is the replacement of the biblical story as our control story by another story. That's big news and the Yale theologians are to be credited in having seen it so clearly. In fact, George Lindbeck, who's not an evangelical, but George Lindbeck says that this reversal, this inability to use the biblical story as our frame of reference for understanding reality, this great reversal is a greater crisis, he says, than the social, economic, political, and environmental crises put together. And as I say, he's not even an evangelical. So I think Lindbeck is right. The change from using the Bible as the lens through which we look at the world to using worldly knowledge as the lens through which we read the Bible, that is as radical a revolution as Copernicus's, Copernicus's discovery that the sun doesn't revolve around the earth, but the earth revolves around the sun. The picture is flipped. But, and here's the irony, the great reversal gets it the wrong way round. It isn't right. I prefer what C.S. Lewis says. Lewis says, Christian theology can fit science, art, morality, and religion into its point of view. But the scientific point of view cannot fit in any of these things or Christianity. And then he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, S-U-N, uh, not because I see the sun, but because by it I see everything else. One cannot serve two master narratives. So choose you this day which story you shall serve. So point two. Here I'm thinking of an essay by the historian Grant Wacker entitled The Demise of Biblical Civilization. And he says that during the 20th century, the average American did not renounce the Bible, but simply stopped using it as the primary plausibility structure with which to make sense of the world. The demise of biblical civilization was simply the failure of imagination to read our world in light of God's word. So point B, underlying this great reversal and the demise of biblical civilization, I think, is what Charles Taylor calls in his book, A Secular Age, a change of social imaginary. This is the key concept I'd like you to get tonight. A social imaginary is the picture or story that frames our everyday beliefs and practices. Taylor says it's the way people imagine their life. It's that nest of assumptions that lead people to just feel things are right or wrong, correct or incorrect. And the imaginary is carried through stories. Taylor defines the social imaginary as what enables the practices of a society by making sense of them. It's like the program a society runs on. It's, you could also call it a root metaphor or a control story. For example, the root metaphor that the world is a machine, that generates a very different way of thinking about the world than thinking that the world is an organism. So note the emphasis on social rather than intellectual. This is another key insight by Charles Taylor. A social imaginary is not a theory. It's not even an argument. It's not the creation of academics or intellectuals. It's a story that somehow gets transmitted socially. 
It's that taken-for-granted story that our culture forms in our minds. It's not taught in universities, it's caught in culture. And it's carried by stories. So, people in the modern age became secular, not because they took a class called Secularity 101, but simply because they live in a society that cultivates a secular imaginary. So social imaginaries are these stories by which we live, these images that orient us and indoctrinate us. And look, everyone has been indoctrinated by some doctrine. Everyone is filled with words, as I started to say tonight, with everyone accepts some teaching. So everybody has doctrines, which is why we need systematic theologians to try to help people decide which doctrines are true and false. Our age is secular because it's held captive by a secular imaginary, a secular picture of the way the world is. So, if secularity has created a crisis for Christian faith, it's because it's replaced the scriptural imaginary with a secular imaginary. I'm suggesting that if we want to get to the root of this pluralism of worldviews, we need to address it not only on the theoretical level, but on this level of the imaginary. Now, I don't have time to take inventory of all the control stories that have taken Scripture's place. But I will mention two and see what you think about these. See if you think these qualify. One story is about modernity's coming of age. The philosopher Kant, in an essay, What is Enlightenment?, answers the question and says that we become enlightened when we throw off the shackles of authority and tradition and dare to reason for ourselves. It's a, almost as if modern thinkers have adapted what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 11 about what's involved in becoming an adult. Remember, Paul says there, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. The secularist would say, about God. I thought like a child. The secularist would say, by listening to biblical stories. I reasoned like a child, systematic theology. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now, Paul isn't talking about secularism, of course, but that is the picture Kant wants us to accept. If you grow up intellectually, you'll say, good night, Christianity. So this first story of what has colonized modernity's social imagination makes reason the hero, but the second story makes freedom the hero. You see, what the stories that continue to grip our imaginations today are often emancipation narratives. Moderns would like you to believe that to be modern is to be part of this march towards greater and greater freedom. Social progress is about overcoming the various forms of oppression that continue to corrupt our institutions. So in this way of telling the story, in this emancipatory social imaginary, freedom is a matter of individual autonomy. It's largely freedom from, not freedom for. And the meaning of the freedom we value is now a function of the secular rather than the scriptural social imaginary. So when modern people say, let freedom reign, they're not thinking about what the Apostle Paul meant when he said, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. A different picture of freedom and growing up has replaced Paul's picture of maturity in Christ. Okay, point four, revive us again. If I'm right that secularized social imaginary is the root of our contemporary pluralistic age, what should we do about it? Of course, argumentation still matters, but I also think we need to deal with the problem at its source. 
And bearing Christian witness involves more than winning arguments. It's not enough simply to win arguments. What you want to do is change the way people view the world and themselves and God. In other words, we need to change the programming. Now, I think too many Christians are themselves suffering from malnourished imaginations. They've bought into culturally conditioned pictures of the good life, things that feature celebrity, wealth, social power. Maybe they want to believe the Bible, try to believe it, but they find it very difficult to feel their life in biblical terms. I believe, help mine unbelief. And so they experience a disconnect between the world they inhabit and the doctrines they profess. So if faith's influence is waning, it may be a failure of the evangelical imagination to connect the world of scripture to the world we live in. Pastors can help here. Pastors can help by reminding their congregations again and again who they are when they look at themselves in the mirror of scripture and where they're going. So my recommendation for how to be biblical in a pluralistic age, we have to retrieve the principle of sola scriptura not simply as a Reformation slogan that pertains to doctrine, but as a rule that pertains to the imagination. There can be only one supreme story <laughs> ruling our imaginations. This is what we need. Pastors can help. We need to recover the Bible as our control story, not simply for theology, but for everyday Christian life. So again, please don't underestimate the competition. Secular culture is forming spirits all week. <laughs> Pastors only get an hour or two on Sunday. So the gospel, especially this dramatic announcement that God has raised Jesus from the dead, the gospel is what sets captive imaginations free. So what we call the evangelical imagination, this imagination ruled by the story of Jesus Christ, frees us to see and to judge and to act in accordance with the way things really are. Not the way science or Hollywood or Madison Avenue says they are. There's lots of words out there, but all that noise in contemporary culture often disorients us from the story and the word we should be attending to. The biblical story alone allows us to live with the grain of reality. So, again, being biblical isn't just a matter of thinking, it's a matter of living. So let's not be like those who look in the mirror of scripture and forget what we see. We have to inhabit the story. We are the flesh of the story, and we have to make it flesh. Did anybody besides me catch that CBS sitcom, Living Biblically? It premiered last year. It's based on a book by a journalist named A.J. Jacobs, a book called The Year of Living Biblically. One man's humble quest to follow the Bible as literally as possible. The TV show is a satire. Mercifully, it was canceled after one season. But it was about a man who, after the death of his best friend, decided he better get his act together. And so he decided to live for a year according to the Bible. But the problem, and it really made me want to tear my hair out, the problem is that every episode focused on one commandment, like thou shalt not steal. And so the overall impression of the show is that living biblically is a matter of following moral principles, many of which seem to be culturally irrelevant. That was the premise of the show. Nowhere does the show suggest that living biblically means participating in what God the Father is doing in God the Son through God the Holy Spirit to renew the whole of creation. That's not the stuff of sitcom comedies. So the church should not play into that stereotype. 
I'm always trying to play against people's stereotypes of what they think a conservative Christian looks like. We need to live biblically together, and this means becoming a holy nation. And this is when the church, at its best, inhabits the story, reading itself in light of the story of Israel, as Paul said we should. 1 Corinthians 10 says these things are written as examples to us. We don't want to make their mistakes, but we want to become a holy nation. That was their vocation. When we live biblically as a Christian community, we become a living parable of the kingdom. And it's hard to laugh at that kind of a show. It's hard to laugh at a reconciled community. It's hard to laugh at a way of life where there's fellowship across ethnicities and social classes. You can't laugh at a real Christian community. So this is the aim of a Christian worldview, not simply truth, although this matters, but wisdom and wellness, shalom. This is a high and holy calling for the church. Leslie Newbigin calls the church a hermeneutic of the gospel. Its life displays to the world what the gospel means. I think it's also an apologetic for the gospel because, as I said, when the church gets its life together and exhibits the truth, goodness, and beauty of Christ, that is a compelling argument. So the ultimate aim of living biblically is to put on the righteousness of Christ, to clothe ourselves in it, but also to put it on in the sense of perform it too for the sake of a watching world. So now I'm at the conclusion. I've acknowledged that we live in a pluralistic age with many paths to wellness. Tomorrow I'm gonna to talk about pluralism in the academy and that raises its own challenges to being biblical. But my present concern is with pluralism in the culture and how pluralism challenges our lives as Christian disciples. I've said that the sheer plurality of worldviews wearies the soul and makes it harder to believe that one story is the one true story. But in response, I've claimed that the church needs to retrieve sola scriptura, scripture alone, and to exhibit the truth of the story in its life. Back to Newbegin, he remains helpful, I think, for a pluralistic age. Newbegin says, I believe that a Christian must welcome some measure of plurality, but reject pluralism. In other words, we need to acknowledge that we may not all read the Bible the same way, but that's not the same thing as saying that every reading is as good as every other. We want to be biblical in a pluralistic age, but we should remember this distinction between plurality and pluralism. But let me finish with five theses, just to, for the sake of time. First, being biblical in a pluralistic age means obeying the Great Commission. It means being gospel-centered. It means making disciples of every nation, and that means people who have accepted the control story of Scripture as the story by which they will, will live. There's wellness nowhere else. Second, being biblical in a pluralistic age means obeying the great commandment to love others as ourselves. This may involve telling people that certain popular ways to wellness do not lead to fulfillment, but frustration. If we love people, we don't want them to keep doing things that won't make themselves well. Third, being biblical in a pluralistic age means adhering to the golden rule, treating even those with whom we disagree the way we would like to be treated by them. This was actually the gist of a recommendations for conduct in a pluralistic age set forth in the Cape Town Commitment, a statement produced by the Third Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization held a few years ago in South Africa. The statement makes this uh, recommendation. Love your neighbor as yourself includes persons of other faith. And I would assume 
It includes persons of no faith. What they're getting at is the plausibility of our witness may be directly related to the pleasability of the way we witness. In other words, gospel witness involves what we say and how we say it. We want to win people's hearts, not drive them away. Fourth, being biblical in a pluralistic age involves not simply believing the gospel, but exhibiting the characteristics of citizens of the gospel. The president of my seminary, David Dockery, has asked Christians to display what he calls convictional civility, that oh-so-challenging blend of boldness and humility, without which civil disagreement would not be possible. Civility, he says, obliges citizens in a pluralistic society to take great care in using words. Words can injure others. Well, I'm asking for this and something more. We need not only to be civil, but to display the virtues commensurate with being citizens of the gospel. This includes a number of characteristics, such as being good listeners, respecting those with whom we disagree. And then finally, and this, this is maybe the sting in the tail, finally, being biblical in a pluralistic age ultimately means being a martyr in both senses of the term. A martyr is a witness, yes, who speaks the truth in love, but also a witness who is willing, if necessary, to suffer for the witness. So it takes a certain kind of person to be biblical in a pluralistic age. It's not easy. We have to develop virtue. We have to practice convictional civility, and we have to contemplate the possibility of martyrdom, at least a kind of martyrdom. We might here speak of the martyrological virtues, characteristics that you need to have if your whole life is going to be a witness to gospel truth. Paul sums it up in his letter to the Philippians. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ. That sums up my five theses. Being biblical means knowing how to embody the mind of Christ everywhere, to everyone, and at all times. Have this mind among yourselves for the love of God and our pluralistic world. Thank you.